words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So this week, the week before Christmas, we hear Matthew's version of the Christmas story, which is different from Luke's version of the Christmas story. So, just to get you going, uh, I invite you to talk to your neighbour, and if you don't have a neighbour, to find a neighbour, and to get out your Bibles, and you're allowed to, it's not, no, it's not a closed book test, and I want you to work out what would be in the Christmas story if we didn't have Luke. So if Luke hadn't written his story, what do we think Christmas would look like? So you've got about two minutes to work that out. What is Matthew's Christmas story all about and how does it differ from Luke's? Right, let's see what you learned, what you've noticed. So, what would the Christmas story look like if we didn't have Luke? Empty, there's not a lot in it. What else? Here's an easy question. Where do Mary and Joseph live? In Matthew's Gospel, where do Mary and Joseph live? Eventually in Nazareth, but at the Christmas story. Bethlehem. In a house. So... In Matthew's story, no stable, no shepherds, just Mary living in Joseph's parents' house with all his brothers and sisters, well, brothers and their wives and other children. So it's a very different story. Very different story. What else did you notice? I know these people talked about the Magi who are currently over there because they arrived in January. 5th of January, they rock on up. They're not here yet, that's Epiphany. So they were over there, they moved over there. I would have them trailing a little bit more, but we have other people using the church, and I don't want them getting damaged, so I have to kind of hide them away. So what happens after Jesus is born? You didn't look that up, you just have to know. In Luke's Gospel, what happens? So they go to... No, that's Matthew's Gospel. In, Luke, in Matthew's Gospel, they go to Egypt. In Luke's Gospel, they go where? Yes, they have the presentation of the temple. And then back home to Nazareth. So they are very different stories. So in Matthew's Gospel, there's nothing about Elizabeth. There's nothing about John the Baptist. That whole side of the story is left out. There's no song of Zechariah. There's no Mary's song. There's no um, Nachdemitus. Uh, none of that is present in Matthew's Gospel. Sorry, John Baptist. He's there, but that early story is not. So the story of Elizabeth, oh, no. all of that is entirely missing. So our Christmas scenes would not look like this if we just had Matthew. There'd be no straw, no shepherds. We'd have Mary and Joseph. And that last song we sang wouldn't make any sense because that's all based on Luke. So, at one level, it doesn't really matter that the Christmas stories are different, but at another level, they are quite different. And there's a reason for that. All the Gospel writers were trying to answer a question, who is Jesus and so what? And their answers are different. So they're not trying to write biographies, they're not writing history, they're writing theology. And they're using the stories of Jesus 
to tell their theology. And so Luke has one way of telling that story, one way of answering that question. Matthew has another way of answering that question. And it's actually good to allow those Gospels to stand on their own so that we can hear their different answers. There's not one right, one wrong. They're all part of offering a bigger picture of who Jesus is and so what. So Matthew, like all of the Gospels, is trying to set out Jesus' credentials for being the Christ, the Messiah, and outlining what kind of Messiah he will be. Like we think, oh, well, the Jews just had one idea of what a Messiah would be. But actually there were several competing ideas about what Messiah should be. Still today, competing ideas about even when the Messiah will come. And he does that, he answers that question through Jesus' whakapapa, his genealogy, which is just before the Jesus story, which says that Joseph is a son of David. He's that line in there. He does it through the birth story. He does it through what John the Baptist says. He does it through John's actions and teachings. And he does it through constantly linking the story of Jesus with the story of the people of Israel. So the people of Israel start in Egypt. It's important in his story that Jesus is in Egypt. So Luke, not important, so you can just go home through the temple back to Nazareth. Matthew, really important. So Jesus is the new Moses. So Luke, this is big, one of his big blocks of teachings on the plane. Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount. Where does Moses get the, receive the Torah? On the mountain. That's why that happens on a mountain. There's that constant linking in Matthew's Gospel. So it is important we read Matthew on its own terms. And one of the one of the differences between Matthew and Luke is that a lot of the story, especially the birth story, revolves around Mary. She's kind of a bit part player. She's the one that gives birth in Matthew's Gospel, but it's actually all about Joseph. So Joseph is presented in uh, Matthew's Gospel in a very pivotal role, and he is presented as a faithful man who is willing to trust God. Now one of the constant things in Matthew's Gospel is the work of the Spirit, taking the initiative and inspiring people to act, animating them. And Joseph is one of those who is open to the work of the Spirit, open to the presence of the Spirit. He is willing to listen and he is willing to act. He is animated by the work of the Spirit. So we are told when he discovers that Mary is pregnant and he's not the father, to preserve his honour and perhaps actually to step out of the way and allow the real father, if he's an honourable man, to take Mary as his wife, as he should and to lay claim to actually say, yes, that child is mine, uh, he decides to quietly divorce her. He could have done that very publicly, he could have done that very noisily and made a bit of hue and a cry about it, but he was just going to do it quietly. And then he has a dream. And the spirit comes to him and says, don't do that, marry her. And he listens and he trusts. And he marries Jesus, uh, marries Mary. He steps outside of what would have been expected of him to do. 
and he publicly declares in taking Mary as his wife that Jesus is his son. So that's an important thing in that society. But the Spirit's work with Joseph is not done at that point. Then in a dream, he is warned to go to Egypt to flee the oncoming barbarity of Herod sending his minions down to kill the innocents in Bethlehem. And he trusts and obeys. And then when it's time to come home after Herod the Great has died, he again has a dream and he's told not to go home to Bethlehem, but to go to Nazareth, which is a much more out-of-the-way place much more low-key, far, far away from the centres of power. Bethlehem is right next door to Jerusalem and much more likely to kind of lie uh, under the radar, we might say, today. And so he does that. So both stories, Luke and Matthew, have Jesus born in Bethlehem and growing up in Nazareth. And that's it. Everything else is different. Now, interestingly, they, Matthew today uses a reading from Ahaz, uh, from Isaiah, about from the story of Ahaz. And uh, we take that prophecy and we say, this is about Jesus. But actually, it wasn't. If we read it on its own terms, it had nothing to do with Jesus. It had nothing to do with any Messiah. Actually, like most of the things the prophet said, it had to do with Ahaz and what was going on in the world of Ahaz. So, Ahaz, in the little bit of the reading we heard today, kind of sounds like a faithful man. He says, no, 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 I won't put God to the test. But actually, in the story of Ahaz, he is not faithful at all. He is very unfaithful and not very trusting of God. In fact, absolutely not trusting of God. But he was in a tight spot. His northern neighbours up there, Samaria or Israel and the kingdom of Aaron, they, um, they, uh, Assyria is showing a lot of interest in them. And Assyria was the kind of big empire of the time and it was pretty nasty. And so they said to Israel, oh not Israel, Judah, come and join us. And Ahaz said, no thank you, that sounds like a terrible idea. And so the kings of Aram and Israel decided that they would overthrow him and put in a king who would help them. And he didn't like that idea, not a big fan of that, so he then is trying to work out what to do. And at this point in the story, Isaiah pops up and he goes to see him and says, don't do anything, trust God child, a woman is going to give birth to a child, so the Hebrew word in Isaiah isn't virgin, it's just young woman a young, it's often translated as virgin but actually just means young woman a young woman will give birth to a child and before that child is two, which is when they could work out the difference between good and evil according to their um, how they thought the kingdoms to the north will be gone Israel will be gone, Aaron will be gone. You don't need to worry about them. They have bigger things to worry about. Just trust God. And Ahaz goes, Ooh. and then Isaiah says, Ask for a sign and God will give you a sign that this is going to be. And Ahaz goes, oh no, I couldn't possibly ask for a sign because... 
He's already done a deal with the king of Assyria. So, but he doesn't want to say, oh, so, thanks for that, it's a great offer, but I've already got another offer. He's like, oh no, I could not possibly, not possibly ask God for a sign. And Isaiah sees right through that, and so does God. And so Isaiah goes, Ugh, whatever, right. So this is the sign. A woman will have a child, and before that child is two, these kingdoms will be gone. So that is about there and then, not about the future. And within two years, those two kingdoms have gone. Unfortunately for um, Ahaz, Assyria then went, yeah, you know what, I think we'll take Judah as well. And they carried on marching down south and laid siege to Jerusalem, but on that occasion they were saved. When the Babylonians came, not such good news. So, do we know whether Ahaz saw that sign or whether he cared about that sign? We don't. But we do know that that sign was remembered and that it became also a sign of the Messiah, according to one of the ideas around what the Messiah would look like. And Matthew remembered that sign. And he applies it to Jesus as a way of saying Jesus is the Messiah and this is the kind of Messiah he will be. This kind that this group of people are expecting. But in the Christmas story, in fact, it's more than a sign, isn't it? It's a, it's a way of God being with us in a new way. So more than the sign that Isaiah was talking about to Ahaz, more than the sign that the prophets were thinking about when they looked to the Messiah, the later prophets, more than just a sign of God's presence, but actually became God's presence amongst us. So I wonder all of that, how all of that helps us celebrate Christmas. Joseph, who was faithful and trusting, as opposed to Ahaz, who was not, and God found in Jesus who is faithful and desires to be with us. Oh, keep forgetting about that one. So that's the young one. So over the last four weeks we have been lighting candles and thinking about the four things. So the first thing, which was actually the second week, was peace, which comes from the Hebrew word shalom. And the root of that word is wholeness, completeness. So peace isn't when a war ends and you don't have fighting anymore. Peace is about when the world is as God desires it to be, as the world is as God created it to be, when it is whole and complete, then there will be true peace. And the sign of that true peace will be harmony between people, people uh, being at peace with themselves, being at peace in harmony with their neighbours, communities being in harmony with other communities, nations being in harmony at peace with other nations. And out of that wholeness, that completeness will come well-being and prosperity and health and safety. It is how we might describe the Messianic Age. It is what we long for in, in Advent. It is the final part, Christ in Majesty. It is what we pray for every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. That is shalom, God's peace. 
But we don't live in that world. So our second theme, although it was our first theme, was hope. And I love this quote from Jim Wallace, the founder of the Sojourners community in Washington, D.C., who talked about hope is believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. Hope is how we live. And so we live as if this age of God's peace, shalom, has come to be. And then as we live that way, we watch the evidence change around us. We become vehicles by which God's peace comes on earth. And then last week, we talked about joy, and I used um, the book of Joy, Lasting Happiness in a Changing World, which was a record of a conversation between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, as recorded by Douglas Adams, a Buddhist, a Christian, and a Jew. And they talked about, well, they, they didn't talk about, but within our Christian context, we talk about gift, uh, joy being a gift from God. It's not something we can do for ourselves. It's not a state of happiness per se. It is actually something that God gives us. And I thought this quote, which actually comes from that book, it's about that. The path to joy, like sadness, sadness does not lead away from suffering and adversity, but through it. And one of the people who talked about joy the most was Francis of Assisi, who lived an incredibly hard life as a beggar, and yet talked about and lived joy that others saw and went, I want what he has, what do I need to do? Well, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. He just quoted Jesus verbatim, and people did. And we talked about how we can nurture that joy. So we talked about the ability to reframe our situation more positively. We talked about the ability to experience gratitude. And we talked about our choice to be kind and generous. And when we nurture the joy within us, then, well, we're part of, part of living hopefully and watching the evidence change around us as we are part of creating God's shalom in the world. This week, we think about love. And as I thought about all of those things, uh, and about some of the big themes in Matthew's Gospel, I was reminded of the work of Blessed John Duns Scotus, who was one of the great theologians of the High Middle Ages in the Western Church. So, a Franciscan, uh, as you can see, um, and uh, he was born in Duns, in Scotland, uh, and he was from Scotland, Scotus. So that's where his name, Dun Scotus, comes from. Uh, and the word dunce comes from him. Because the people who disagreed him, agreed with him, thought he was dumb. And uh, so then they, the word dunce, uh, put dunce hats on people and made him sit on the But actually, uh, a lot of people think that he was incredible. Uh, and just his theology at times didn't quite fit with other people's. So he wasn't in, you, like, you have to agree with me and not that guy. He was like, well, he, he's got some valid points, but here's some more points to add to that discussion. So he was more that kind of person. So other people who were around at the same time as him was Bonaventure, uh, another great Franciscan. And you may or may not have heard of him, but Bonaventure is the one who said, in the Eucharist, God bends down in love and meets us in the bread and wine which is just a beautiful image. Uh, another one you probably have heard of, given there's a school around here named after this guy, is Thomas Aquinas. 
So Aquinas, Bonaventure, and uh, Duns Scotus were around at the same time, talking to each other. Uh, actually, in the University of Paris, there at the same time, until Bonaventure had gone to be Minister General. And so one of the things that uh, Duns Scotus talked about was the Incarnation. And like a good Franciscan, he was, he based everything on God's love. God's love is the starting point. And so he talked about uh, the Incarnation, which comes amongst us at Christmas, being caused simply by God's generous and free love. Now one of the questions that was asked then and occasionally is asked now is, why Christmas? Why would God come amongst us? Would there still be a Christmas if there was no fall? So if Adam hadn't disobeyed, if there hadn't been a fall, would there still be a Christmas? And Thomas Aquinas said, no, there wouldn't be a fall. There wouldn't be a Christmas. There would be no need for Christmas. Uh, and Christmas is about fixing the fall. And most of us think that's what it's all about. And all the movies that I might use at Christmas Day all come from that point of view. But Duns Scotus said, yes, there would still be a Christmas. Christ was God's first thought before creation. And the coming of Christ in the world was always going to happen because it was God's desire to be with God's creatures, God's creation in that way amongst us as one of us. It comes out of God's love to be there in love drawing us into that love. Thomas, uh, Thomas Richard Rohr, a Franciscan writer of today, des describes this as God's preemptive strike of love, not dependent on what we do. John uh, Dan Scotus said, The incarnation is not provoked by anything a mere human creature has done, i.e. the form. It was always God's intention was always God's desire to be with us in this new way. How does that help us think about Christmas and the love that is present at Christmas? And what does that look like when we try to live that out for others? I want to finish with this quote that I uh, uh, heard in a book by a Muslim about interfaith uh, working uh, in the interfaith area with young people and he was um, he was describing a conversation between a Buddhist, uh, Buddhist a Muslim and a Jew about the huge similarities between the two religions not the great divisions that they had been taught and led to understand and the Jewish young woman quotes Rabbi Hillel who was one of the great rabbis of the rabbinic tradition and was alive around the same time as Jesus. So he's a Palestinian rabbi around the same time as Jesus. And he said, if I'm not for myself, who will, I, who will be for me? It's fair enough. The trouble is we usually stop there. But he went on. If I'm not for others, what am I? And if not now, when? 
So I invite you to think about some of those things. Love, images of Ahaz and Joseph, Matthew's story of Christmas, and what all that offers us as we, on this fourth Sunday of Advent, looking forward to Christmas Day. And uh, I invite you to turn around and talk to your neighbour for a couple of minutes. Um, the creed is in here, but I'm going to suggest we just skip quickly through the creed, not saying it, and go straight to the prayers at the end of that. Got that, Clark? Yeah, just pop it through. Okay, so have a conversation uh, for two or three minutes with your neighbours. What stood out? What questions do you have? How do you respond?